Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today you guys are in for a treat. We have five-time New York Times bestselling author, scientist, international educator, and renowned pioneer in the emerging paradigm of science, social policy, spirituality, and human potential, Greg Braden. And Greg and I had a just eye-opening conversations on all sorts of things from the fabric of reality, spirituality, science, quantum physics, where we're going in 2023, and so, so much more. Greg was a fantastic guest, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear this eye-opening conversation. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Greg Braden. How you doing, Greg? Alex, I am doing awesome. I am excited to be with you today. This is completely unscripted. We have no idea where it's going to go, and that's... <laughs> That's what makes it so exciting. I'm, uh, we're actually not too far from one another. I'm coming to you from a studio just outside of uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, I'm just, just to the north of you there in Texas. So uh, I'm happy to Beautiful. be with you today, and, and I'm really happy to be with your community. So thank you for the opportunity to, to connect a little bit with, uh, with this this program. I appreciate you, my friend. Yeah, I've been to Santa Fe many times. It's a beautiful, just wonderfully spiritual energy. There's an energy there without question. You know, well, New Mexico is a really interesting, uh, it's an interesting place. It's one, it's a large state that is one of the most sparsely populated states yeah. in the country. There's a million and a half people in the whole state. A million Man. live in one, in one city in Albuquerque. That's only 500,000 people for, you know, Santa Fe, Taos, uh, Las Cruces, all these other communities. And, and honestly, the farther north you go, the prettier it is. It is just, uh, it's what's called high desert. So it's... Um, it's beautiful. A uh, lot, lot of uh, mysteries around the indigenous traditions from uh, from Albuquerque all the way up to the Colorado border. So I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yes, my friend. So my friend, you know, your work has been. I mean, I've been watching you for years and and studying the work that you've been doing for a long time because you are one of these one of these figures who have been able to connect not only human potential and science but also spirituality, and that's a rare mix. So how did you begin your journey combining these, 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 these somewhat, some, some say, you know, things that are opposites, but truly, as we all know, they're all really interconnected. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's the thing. They're, they're not opposites. And, and what people often ask me, they say, Greg, how did you make what they perceive as a, as a quantum leap? Uh, I'm a scientist. I'm a degreed earth scientist, uh, strong background, life sciences. And I happen to be a scientist uh, in the industry when computers were really coming into vogue back in the, uh, in the, the well, it was the late 60s, early 70s, and, and through the 80s. Uh, computers had been around, but they were the size of, of an entire room. And they were being miniaturized to fit on what we now call a desktop or, a, you know, a laptop computer. And, and so I had a very strong uh, expertise in math, physics, and computer science. And and so it was a, a diverse background, a strong and diverse background that allowed me to tap into a lot of different sciences during that time. And, you know, when I was in school back in the you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s, we were taught that uh, the sciences were all compartmentalized. So, you know, math and physics were kind of a common language, but you kept biology separate from geology, separate from chemistry, you know, and and the truth is the world doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, there's just a world, there's nature, and nature doesn't know about those boundaries. So uh, it, it was less of a quantum leap 
and more of a logical progression of understanding uh, the sciences. And, you know, we talk about spirituality. The, the truth is that the people have assigned definitions to spirituality that limit our understanding of spirituality. The true definition of spirituality is it's all about relationships. And it's about our relationship with ourselves, uh, our relationship with the earth, with the past, with the future, uh, with God, with uh, other people. And those relationships are all defined by the sciences. So it made perfect sense for me through a scientific lens to explore these relationships. And um, I think there, there wasn't any you know, great uh, awakening moment, but I will say, and a lot of my community know about this, I was, uh, during the Cold War years, I, w I was tapped as an earth scientist for my expertise in, uh, in computer science. And it gave me a, a front row view to the horrors that were happening during the Cold War when the, the former USSR and the, and the former USA, because it's, it wasn't the same, you know, it's a very different country now. When those two superpowers came about this close to doing the unthinkable with nuclear weapons, it was an absolutely insane time. And my feeling has always been, Alex, that if we know where to look into the past and how to interpret the wisdom of past civilizations that we would find the key that would help us to become greater than the differences that separate us and led to the wars like the Cold War that, that I was uh, working in. So I really wanted to devote my, my time to finding what is it that our ancestors knew that we've forgotten or what did they know that we're only beginning to understand <clears throat> that could help us create the kind of world uh, in reality that we know is, is possible in our hearts. And, and spirituality and science seemed to me like a reasonable path to, uh, to pursue that. So that's a long answer to a short question, but that's, that's kind of the way it happened. It's really interesting. You know, the more I've studied over the years of our, I, I'm a fa I'm, I just absolutely love history, love ancient civilizations. I've been to a, a bunch of sites in Mexico, um, went to Chichen Itza, went to Tulum, and you just sit there and you just, in like Chichen Itza, you just sit there and you look at this awe-inspiring creation and how, you know, hunter-gatherers slash, you know, maybe some, you know, some um, agricultural societies built something like that, which we would have trouble in today's world to even content, to even think about building something like that. In your experience from all your research over the years, I mean, there's just, I mean, this is a large conversation. This is a lar large question, sure. but in ancient civilizations, it just seems that the technology that was that is was brought in from the Great Pyramids to, uh, and you know, Cocopele, uh, Coco, uh, what's the new one? Not Cocopele. Um, the one they just found in Turkey. Um, Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. That uh, that Tepe. Yeah. That those kind of sites, which is now starting to rewrite history, we're like, wait a minute. 12,000 years ago or 10, 000, 10, about 12,000 years ago, the, the end of the last ice age, this is, doesn't make any sense. Hunter-gatherers couldn't just wake up one morning and build this stuff. Sure, sure. So what is your thoughts of, did we kind of devolve and we were once a little bit more advanced? I mean, if you look into the yugas uh, and the concepts of in, in, in ancient um, Hindu scripts that talk about the cycles, the 24,000 year cycles, and that we were at a higher higher societal intellectual thing and we start to devolve sure. <laughs> which looking around us we have devolved <laughs> but i'd just like to hear your thoughts on it sure well it's a big it's a big question it's an yeah. important question so I, i'm just going to take about a half step back to give yeah. context the question uh there's a battle unfolding in our world right now that's playing out on many different levels there is a battle for our beliefs mm -hmm. what we believe about everything, what we believe about climate change, about pandemic, about 5G, about, you know, chemtrails, all those things. Yeah. There's a battle for our thoughts. And that battle is playing out every every minute of every hour of every day through the news feeds of uh, legacy media that are, are pushing us to embrace a way of thinking that supports very, very specific agendas. There is a battle playing out in the classroom. Uh, in terms of the textbooks and the, the teachings, who we are, 
where we come from, and uh, and this battle is is all over what is called um, well, it's it's our story, the story of, of our past. But all of this, in my experience, in my opinion, uh, is providing cover for an even deeper battle. And there is literally a battle for our very humanness. Our humanness is on the line as advanced technologies are being proposed to replace our biology. So everything from artificial intelligence to chemicals in the blood, chips in the brain, sensors under the skin, all of this. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So there is a battle for the way that we have been taught to think about ourselves. And that battle is fighting tooth and nail to to hang on to what's called the standard model. So the standard model says that we're born into a dead universe, a dead inert universe, Big Bang, just happened to occur, lucky physics is what it's called, uh, and that we are the product of random genetic mutations, lucky biology is what it's called, and uh, that civilization began in a primitive state and evolved slowly, gradually over long periods of time. This is all part of the, the standard model that's being fought for. The problem, Alex, is that the data, as a scientist, I can look you and our viewers right in the eye, and I can tell you this straight up uh, without any, any hesitation, the data doesn't support the standard model. The data now tells us that the universe uh, appears to be alive. It functions as a, as a living being. Uh, it makes intelligent decisions. When there's a star that's going to explode and can damage uh, other star systems or other solar systems, they will change their course to avoid the, the, the energy that's coming from, um, from these exploding stars. And the Hubble Space Telescope and the James Webb Telescope were the first to actually capture these things happening, and it was if it was just once, it could be a fluke, but it was happening again and again and again. The universe appears to be a, a living entity, alive, conscious. Humans, there is no physical evidence to support the theory of evolution as we are teaching in our schools that we evolved from primitive, uh, you know, less, less evolved beings than we are. It's speculation, it's theory. Uh, and now the DNA studies are telling us that we appeared mysteriously about 200,000 years ago. Uh, we can extract the DNA from ancient forms of life now and compare their genome to ours. And it tells us Neanderthal, is, we didn't descend from Neanderthal. We share DNA because we interbred with them. They so say we had Neanderthal boyfriends and girlfriends. <laughs> And some people say they still do. You I know, was about they, to say, some people, there's many, I've met many of them, sir. Yeah, well, I, I was at an event recently and I said that and the woman on the front row, she made that comment. She said, you know, I still do. And the guy next to her wasn't laughing. So I'm guessing that was probably, the, I, was, I was seeing it happen in real time. But so, so the point of all of this is the evidence doesn't support the standard model. The standard model keeps us feeling powerless and separate from our world and makes us vulnerable to other people's ideas of, how we live our lives and what kind of society is, uh, what kind of a society is possible. When it comes to civilization itself, the same thing is happening. When I was in school, you know, again, 50s, 60s, early 1970s, I was taught that, that civilization began in what's called the, the cradle of civilization, the Indus Valley, about 5,000 years ago, uh, the Tigris Euphrates Valley. Right. That idea has gone right out the window, but it's still being taught in the uh, <clears throat> mainstream curriculum. We now know there was not a single cradle of civilization, but there were apparently six simultaneous cradles of civilization. Tigris Euphrates was one of them. Egypt was one. There was one in Mesopotamia. Well, Mesopotamia. There was one in China, uh, one in northern in the uh, northern Peru. It was called the Corral civilization. Uh, Mesoamerica was another one of those civilizations. And what's interesting is they all had similar technologies and uh, they all had the, you know, the, the pyramidal technologies. They all had uh, cosmologies that tell us uh, things about our solar system and our Milky Way that we only rediscovered in the 20th century. And some of this stuff's thousands of years old. They had architecture, they had agriculture, they had mathematics. Uh, and 
so the question is, you know, where did all of that come from? Why, how, how did all of that happen? And as a scientist, what I have to say, honestly, when you look at the data and you look at the genetic ma manipulation that had to occur for us to be who we are, human chromosome number two is very well documented as being a fused uh, a chromosome that's a result of a fusion and genetic manipulation that cannot happen under natural circumstances. And it's responsible for our ability to have empathy and sympathy and um, self-regulation of our biology. It's responsible for a brain 50% larger than our nearest primates. It's all because of that chromosome. And chromosome 7 uh, is the reason that we have complex speech. and why you will never hear a chimpanzee saying Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven because their chromosome 7 does not have the mutations that ours does. Ours all underwent the mutations at the same time, rapidly, uh, in the same period of time, not slowly, gradually, over long periods of time. And scientists know that these things cannot happen under natural conditions. So as a scientist, I have to say that it appears that there's some kind of intervention that has happened in our past uh, 200,000 years ago, and scientists agree on the date. So, you know, we appeared 200,000 years ago, no, no controversy around that. The question is, where do we come from? <clears throat> That's where the, the controversy is happening. So the civilizations that we have been taught in the past, uh, we were taught that civilization began 5,000 years ago. Now what we know is that 5,000 years is the most recent 5,000 year cycle. And it's, we've been taught the history only of the most recent 5,000 year cycle. And there was another one before that. And that's where you see things like uh, the Gulf of Kambat in India uh, under 120 feet of water, 9,500 years old, a city three miles long, five miles wide that matches the description in the Bhagavad Gita that everybody thought was a fairy tale. And that's where you see other uh, places like Corral in southern Peru. Corral collapsed when we are taught that civilization began. Corral right. collapsed 5,000 years ago, but it goes back another 2,000 years before that. So there, there's another 5,000-year window. And now Gobekli Tepe and right. what we're finding now in Antarctica, now that the ice is melting, satellites are showing complex archaeological structures. Pyramids. Uh, under, yeah. Un underneath the ice, that ice has been there for 20,000 years. The question is, who was building this stuff 20,000 years ago? So now you've got a third 5,000-year cycle. And these, these cycles are very familiar. They're, they're 5,125-year-long cycles that are called Great World Ages uh, that make up the Mesoamerican calendar. Many people call it the, the Mayan calendar, uh, that are driven largely by uh, climate change and by Earth's location uh, in space relative to the sun. Earth does a, a dance. So it's a tilt and an angle and a wobble that Earth right. is, is doing on a regular basis. Uh, Milankovic cycles is, is what these are called in, in geologic terms. And that drives a lot of the change. So now we're looking back, we're looking back at pre-Ice Age civilizations, uh, you know, over 20,000 years uh, BP before present. And, uh, and the standard model is pushing back on this. So, so as a scientist, I can tell you what happens when the discovery is made, Alex, it doesn't fit the traditional model. So right. whether it's, it's evolution for humans or whether it's civilization, you know, uh, for, for the planet, if the discovery doesn't fit, it's called anomaly. And then they take the anomalies and they put them into a pile over here and they say, you know, we'll come back and, and we'll look at that later. Well, now what's happened is the pile of anomalies is actually so great it's rewriting the traditional story. So I, I have friends in academia. Well, they're friends until we have this conversation. <laughs> we, we talk for a while. And I, you know, and I ask them, I said, well, how come you can't, why can't you teach this to your students? Why not share everything with our young people? Give them the old ideas, give them the new discoveries and let them, you know, let them figure it out. And uh, what this particular is, a male, he's a professor at a well-known university, he said, you know, we're going to leave that battle for the next generation of professors. He said, there's a, a new generation of, of college professors. Uh, we're going to let them fight 
that standard model because we don't want to change the books. We don't want to change what we've taught for 40 or 45 years. So here, here's the, the net result is that we have a generation of young people now that are dedicated and really want to solve the problems that we have left them, but we're asking them to solve the problems through the same thinking that we use to create the problems. We're, we're not sharing the, the new information. So of course that's changing. Uh, it's changing very slowly. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And um, so it's a long answer to a short question, but I, I think the, what we have to say is there has been intervention and all of the evidence, if, if you look at the DNA evidence, it supports that through genetic manipulation, cultural evidence, uh, every indigenous tradition I've ever studied, Alex, not one of them says anything about evolution, slow, gradual change. They all say we are the product of, uh, of a, a greater cosmic community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have relations that extend beyond this world. They all say that from the Tibetans to the, the shamans and the, the Yucatan and certainly the, in the Andes, the native uh, indigenous traditions throughout the Americas, they all say this. So this is, this is the cultural evidence, the archeological evidence. I am a consultant as a geologist and a linguist. I'm a consultant on uh, a couple of archeological projects that are now revealing uh, archeological evidence depicting direct relationships between people of the earth and people from beyond the earth. And what's interesting is on these archeological artifacts, there are maps of our solar system that are showing rings around Neptune, for example, that we didn't even know had rings until, uh, you know, relatively late in the 20th century. And, uh, and they're showing, of course, the rings around Saturn and also the rings around Jupiter. They're showing the relative sizes. They're showing the moons of the different uh, planets in our solar system. But the interesting thing is they're showing it as if you were coming in bound rather than from Earth leaving our solar system and you have to say where does that stuff come from and if you see one or two you could say well maybe it's a lucky fluke we're literally talking about hundreds of artifacts depicting the same things but they are um, they're recorded in different media uh, different most of it's on stone that we're seeing so so now we've got archaeological evidence we've got genetic evidence we've got cultural evidence uh, and archaeological evidence because what we're seeing is these archaeological sites are now being dated 25, 30,000 years uh, before BP, before present, Ice Age or even pre-Ice Age, and none of it fits the standard model. None of it supports the story that we've been taught. And this is what I know my dear friend Graham Hancock talks about this a lot, David Hatcher Childress, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot, a lot of, uh, we've been around for a long time, but, but I think what's happening now is that the world is changing and we're, we're up against issues and problems that we can only solve by being honest with ourselves about who we are. Mm-hmm. And, and so now the data supports a new, a new human story. And the question is, do we love ourselves enough? Do we love the world enough to embrace what the evidence is saying to us and follow it where it leads? rather than taking that evidence and trying to cram it into a pre-existing story where it, it doesn't fit. And that's the spiritual endeavor, I think, that's up for all of us right now. And it's it's really fascinating because I think the thing that is changing, and I think not just in the the arena that we're talking about, but also in spirituality, in in religion, in in so many different fields the information now that was once guarded by gatekeepers is now free and open. I mean, Graham's new, uh, Graham Hancock's new series that just came out on Netflix, for God's sakes, is going to be watched by millions and millions of people and open up conversations. Shows like this is getting information out there. And the young, the younger generation is watching shows like this and watching shows like Graham's and reading books like yours and, and Graham's and other, other leaders in this space. And they're just saying, just ask the question. Look well, where the got, evidence is. We, we've got people like you who are now dedicating your lives, taking everything you lo- you learned in your previous industry, mm-hmm. and you're applying it to a new industry 
where we can share information like this. And, and there is a new generation. I remember, I've known Graham for a long time. Uh, we were working in Egypt at the same time, different projects. I remember being in Egypt when he and Robert Bouval uh, and others were banned from the Giza Plateau because of what they had discovered and how it goes against the, uh, what was being taught about Egyptian history and about Egyptian archeology. span They were banned from, from those sites. And uh, you know, it was a different world then. It was a different world. And we're lucky enough to be here bridging those worlds. And there is a new generation of young people that say, you know, what's the big deal? Let's get on with it. Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's find out what, what's really true. So, so it's, uh, it, that's why it's such an exciting time right now. Now, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, because I know you've talked about this in the past, the, the new concept, or I'm not sure how new it is, of simulation theory. And I've had a couple of scientists on before to talk about that. And it just, again, um, if, if, really quickly, if you explain what simulation theory is, but <laughs> really quickly, uh, but but the general concept, but a lot of the things that are science and quantum physics is starting to bring up, which, which the, the establishment is not happy about. Quantum physics, when it came out, was pretty much shut. The door was shut on it and hasn't been any major advances in quantum physics since 1918, from my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that it's getting closer and closer to what the ancients were talking about in spiritual texts from the Vedas. I mean, there's concepts in the Vedas that now they're just like, oh yeah, yeah. Maya, <laughs> which is simulation theory. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts on it. Well, you know, it's, it's a big conversation. I, um, <laughs> Can I say the name of uh, of another video series on your show? Sure, of course, of course. So, if, for those listeners that are familiar with uh, with Gaia, uh, the Gaia, yeah, of course, uh, yeah, I film, love Gaia film company. I did an entire series called "Missing Links," season number two. The entire season was dedicated to this conversation. So I think it was thir thirteen episodes. The bottom line is just to summarize: it's called the forbidden question in the world of physics. And the question is, are we living in a virtual reality or in a computer simulated reality? And you know, a lot of people will say, well, no, you know, everything here is real. And the question is, if you were in a simulation, how would you know that it's a simulation if that's all that you have ever known? And the idea is not new. Uh, it was first proposed back in 1940s. The, the thinking that we may be living in at that time, the term virtual reality wasn't popular term, but the, the idea of a simulation was. Uh, and, and the first computers were being built back in the 40s. And they were saying, is it possible that, that we are the product of an advanced civilization? Or maybe we are the advanced civilization and we've placed ourselves into a simulation uh, to learn something. That's the purpose of a simulation. And, is to learn something in, uh, in an immersive environment, to learn something in that environment that you're gonna need when you go somewhere else. So when you look at the ancient traditions, every one of them says that this world isn't real. They say we're living a, a dream or we're living the, you said the Hindu traditions, uh, that's called the Maya, the Maya is the dream. Christian traditions, you know, say that uh, this world is temporary. We're from someplace else. We're going to learn something here and then, and then we're going to leave. It's not going to last long here. We're going to go somewhere else. So they all, all support this, but that's not science. <clears throat> Where the science gets really interesting is uh, 1991, Nick Bostrom. Uh, I didn't know we we're going to have this conversation. So I'm doing this all from, from memory from the top <laughs> of my head, but it was, it was Nick Bostrom that uh, wrote the first paper. And actually, it was a PhD thesis asking, are we living in a simulated reality? And, and you now can get uh, a graduate degree in uh, exploring the question of whether or not we are living in, in a simulation or not. But he, he wrote a paper and he created a very complex algorithm, uh, plugging in many variables from everyday life. And if you're looking at the clock, we're good on time here. I'm, okay. I'm good. It's, it's a good. It's a good conversation. Appreciate that. And well, and the first question you asked, I spoke extraordinarily long. Uh, didn't give give you much time to chime in. So, <laughs> so I'm I'm good. I'm good to go here. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you. So, so what Bostrom did was he created this algorithm, plugged in all these variables from everyday life, and the uh, the algorithm came back and said the odds are uh, are much greater that we are living in a simulated reality, then that, that, that this is what's called a base reality. 
Stephen Hawking was exploring this before he died. He said, this is the, the big question we have to, to ask ourselves. Are, are we living in a base reality or is there another base reality out there and we are one of many simulations? Uh, so when you think about this, you know, mm -hmm. it actually makes a lot of sense because in, in a simulation, who benefits from the simulation? And, and the answer is it's the people in the simulation because they are the ones that are learning. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. When you look at the properties of a simulation, it, you know, whether it's a, a flight simulator teaching pilots how to fly or a docking simulator so SpaceX can connect to the space station or, you know, a, sim, a simulator so you can set up solar panels on the surface of Mars, you need to know how you do it before you get there. So, so every simulation has a beginning, it has an end. Uh, every simulation has rules. If you follow those rules, uh, the simulation is going to go much easier for you. Every simulation is based upon cycles. Uh, the computer will generate cycles of time or cycles of experience that repeat in the simulation. Uh, every simulation, this is really interesting, every simulation has a way for those in the simulation to communicate beyond the simulation when they need help. So, you know, and if you're in a flight simulator, you got crosswinds and you say, hey man, I've got cross, you're, you're on a radio talking to someone that's not in your simulator. Uh, so when you compare those, you compare those to what we're living right now, we have, uh, the universe has a beginning and mathematically we can tell you when it's gonna complete. Solar, size, solar system and, and life, we have beginnings and endings. We have rules that were left to us by our ancestors a long time ago. And if we follow those rules, life gets much easier. Uh, we're all told that this is a dream or an illusion or a Maya. And when we get in trouble, rather than asking somebody else in the same situation, we were taught that we have the ability in consciousness to go beyond the simulation, to ask your higher self, which may be you, your higher self may be you outside of the simulation, uh, that you're communicating with or to ask God, you know, who may be the architect of the simulator or ask your ancestors who have died or, you know, who are now sitting outside the simulation and what seems like a lifetime of a hundred years for us could be 10 minutes in a simulation. It, so our entire lifetime, our perception of time could be 10 minutes. We may be the product of a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated civilization that's very ancient, that has run into some problem. And that problem probably is mirrored in the simulation. It could be an ecological disaster, it could be war. Maybe, maybe we are living in a world where we're about to destroy ourselves in war and we're all in the simulation saying, is there another way? And if that's true, it would make sense that you would have multiple simulations and physics now tells us the multiverse, multiverse. multiverse theory so, you know, a lot of these things, uh, different languages are telling us, they're pointing to the same thing. When you, I just, I just did a, um, I was just on the webinar earlier today and there was a physicist that I was talking to that was telling us how we are essentially, we're 99.999 and he, he went out like six decimal places, empty space. There's not much right. to us here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that is precisely the way you would expect a computer to build an avatar in, in a simulation. So one of the, the interesting things that um, Elon Musk talks about when the, he, he's a strong believer that we are in, in a simulated mm -hmm. environment, he said, you know, we've only had computers 60 or 70 years and we are building environments that are essentially indistinguishable from everyday life. You go to Disney and, and you see this on a large scale. You go into uh, some of those rooms, it's all computer generated and it looks just real as hell. You don't know the difference. What would we be able to do as, as a civilization if we had had computers for five or 10,000 years, which is, is nothing in simulation? How, how real would our simulations be? And, and then you look at the themes that are playing out in our world today and the, and the overriding theme of good versus evil and the ability uh, for us to find a quality of love 
within us that transcends the hurt and the suffering uh, and the evil that we find around us. Maybe that's the theme that's playing out here because we're going to go to a world where we need to know those things. So we could go on and on, but the, the bottom line is the science actually now, now a new, a new experiment was done in 2014 uh, that is showing, I mean, this gets pretty wild. It's in the experiments, an object only exists if it's being observed. If it's not being observed, right. it, it's not there. Here's, yeah. here's why that's important, because in a computer, when you play a computer game, that computer can, cannot hold an entire city in its memory because it takes up too much memory. So it's only when you are in that part of the city that the walls and the buildings become apparent. And if nobody's there, you, you don't need that. What the experiments are showing is in, in, the sim, in our physics lab simulations is that things only exist when they're being observed. If they're not observed as particles, then they become waves. It's still energy, but it is the observation, the interaction that collapses the waves into the particles that we call reality. And that is exactly the way that uh, our computers work with simulations today. So, so it's a big question. It's a big question. No, that it's it's fascinating. I mean, I keep hearing more and more of these things. All this information is coming out little by little and kind of yeah. like dripping out for for the you know for the normal public, not academia, to to start to digest and to understand. I mean, the Matrix was the big zeitgeist shift that we started to think. Wait a minute, are we in a simulation? It was the first time well, it went yeah. into the zeitgeist. The, the thing about the Matrix was the theme. What the, what the Matrix said is that there's a world we cannot see that influences the world we can see and we we are in both of those worlds now the, the you know all the hollywood fighting and all that they sure. they did that to make it palatable but the the theme so there is an emerging philosophy that's in the scientific community that says consciousness informs itself through the things that it creates so in other words we i write a book or an artist creates a painting or a sculpture. Uh, Hollywood makes movies. Where do those ideas come from? It, this philosophy says that those ideas come because we as a mass consciousness are asking ourselves to remember something about ourselves. And one of the ways we're doing it is through our, what we call entertainment. But the entertainment is actually telling us something, uh, you know, very important about ourselves. This philosophy extends to technology. It says all the technology that we've ever built, as complex as it is, it mirrors something that we already do within us. And uh, I just did an entire program based up, upon this. And as a scientist, I have to say it's true. I, I have yet to see any technology in the world around us that doesn't mimic what we already do in the cells, from the building of the internet to the way information mm -hmm. is stored on the chip, even blockchain technology that now is going to revolutionize the way that finance and money, what they mean to us in our world, blockchain mimics the way information is stored in the, the genome. In the genome, there is a transparent, immutable record of every genetic transaction that has ever occurred leading up to the current moment, to the current genome. That is the beauty of blockchain technology because there, it is a transparent, immutable record of every digital transaction that has ever occurred so it cannot be manipulated the way current you know centralized financial systems are and things like that it looks like the technology that will free us from the shackles of fear and greed financially mirror the way that we store information in the cells of our body consciousness informs itself through its creations so the simulation may be telling us the same thing maybe our ability to, to simulate on a computer a game, mm -hmm. we may be reminding ourselves through that, that we are living that in, in our lives. And if so, then how, how many layers are we into that simulation? Where is our, <laughs> our base reality? That's a, another conversation I think that we could have. Um, I do have to ask you because I, I just found out about this this archaeological site in Turkey, the uh, Gobe Gobelik Tepe. I can never Go, say it. It's Go, Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. It is a game changer for the narrative of of ancient civilizations. It just throws the timeline of 
all the stuff that we've kind of talked about through this conversation out yeah. the window. Can you tell everybody a little bit, just a little bit about what it is sure. and what they've discovered there? Yeah, well, this is, uh, it's a, a beautiful example. <clears throat> Excuse me, my lips are dry. I've been doing interviews all, all day today. <laughs> I appreciate you. Yeah, and I'm sinking lower in my chair. I've got to adjust this chair here. <laughs> I, um... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, it's a it's a perfect example of where the the false narrative of obsolete science being held in the classroom has hurt knowledge in the past. It's a it's a perfect example because Gobekli Tepe, it, it's a series of mounds. They were discovered in uh, southern Turkey. They were discovered. There was a an American archaeologist who made the discovery back in the 90s. And he dated these things and they came back over 10,000 BP before present. And he had learned what all of us had learned, that civilization began 5,000 years ago. And, and, and so to have a date twice that, he said, well, there's a problem with the machines. He walked away from the discovery of a lifetime. And it wasn't until a German archeologist went to the same site and he believed the data, and he very famously said, he said, if I don't leave right now, he said, I'll spend the rest of my life here. And he did, and he died, I think it was 2000, I think it, he died in 2017 or 2018 at, at the site. So Gobekli Tepe is a series of, uh, of round temple sites that have been buried intentionally by whoever was living there, they were buried 8,000 years ago. We don't know why they were buried. If they were buried to protect them or to hide them, we don't know the answer to that. But now, and only a couple of them have been excavated. So earth penetrating radar is showing there are about 20 of the, the temple sites. Uh, only a couple have been excavated and, and uh, I think one or one primarily is available to the public right now. It's, it's an ongoing archeological site. But now they're, they're showing, the, the dating is showing that it was buried 8,000 years ago, which already blows the timeline, uh, but that now they're going back over, over 13,000 years BP before present. Well, the reason this is a problem, two reasons. One, it's, it's older than 5,000 years <laughs> of the cradle of civilization. But number two, as a geologist, it's fascinating to me because the, the last ice age ended uh, right around 12,000 years ago. And, uh, and then there was a, a period of unsettled weather for about 4,000 years uh, when the ice melted and the great floods happened on the earth. We, we can see that. So if the ice age ended around 12,000 and we're now dating 13 to 15,000, that means these were either built during the ice age, which is unlikely, or they were built pre-ice age and then the ice, uh, you know, was, uh, and, and all of this, you know, these other things happened that, that were allowed them to be covered. So the truth is we don't know who built these and there appear to be no written records. And you find this time and time again. And uh, I lead groups into Southern Peru every, I have for uh, 40 years now. Uh, COVID was the first time in 40 years that we didn't go to Peru at least once with, with a group. And, and, um, and we'll be going back in 23. Uh, what we find in the, the pre-Incan sites uh, like Tiwanaku and uh, in Bolivia, and even in, in some of the archaeological sites in, in the Sacred Valley in Cusco, no written records. So you see this time and time again, Corral, Peru, no written records. Or did they have written records that we simply haven't recognized? Were they using a form of communication that we're only you know, beginning to understand? And that's, the evidence supports that, and that's the beginning of another conversation. So Gobekli Tepe is a tangible mystery because you, you cannot deny what the evidence is showing. Antarctica is blowing those dates right out the window. The problem is Antarctica is off limits to civilians. So there's a little place on the Ross Shelf where civilians are allowed, you know, a little day trip. But the interior of Antarctica uh, is, is off limits. Uh, it, By who? Who? who Who's stopping that? Well, this is what's interesting. Back in the 1950s, this is at the, uh, you know, during the Cold War years, <clears throat> um, 
Antarctica was kind of divided up. It was said it was an international, you know, international continent. Nobody owns it, but at the same time, the superpowers at the time put military bases. China's got their base, America has their base, Russia has their base. Uh, the interior of the continent, once you get beyond the ice, uh, appears to be desert. There is no ice. It's, uh, and it's got to be one of the driest, it's zero humidity, one of the driest places on, on the face of the really? earth. Yeah, it's a fast, as a geologist, I, I'm fascinated by it. So I think it's probably some of the tallest mountain ranges are underneath that ice right now. The ice is about two miles thick and it's been there around 20,000 years. Now that global warming is melting the ice, what the satellite imagery is showing are complex structures. They're not like little pole huts, you know, in, in hunting villages. I mean, these are big complex structures and they are believed to be relatively intact. And either somebody built them in the ice or they were there before the ice occurred 20,000 years ago. Uh, and there's a lot of mystery around that. Well, you're, you're from the film industry in LA. You probably heard some of this. They had film crews that have gone down that have never been seen again. Uh, one of them very famously was from, I think, UCLA. And they were, you know, relatively young people. Uh, we don't know where that film crew is. The parents are, you know, working with uh, agencies was, to, yeah. to try to find it out. So, so I think whatever we discover when, and it will be revealed, when it's revealed in Antarctica will will blow the Gobekli Tepe dates right out the window. And all of it, all of it says to us is that there's a new human story emerging. We are not what we've been told. We're more, so much more than we've been led to believe in the past. The better we know ourselves, the better equipped we are to deal with the crises and the challenges that life brings to our doorstep. And the better we know ourselves, the less we fear change. And this is a big one, Alex, because the world is changing and people are being conditioned to af be afraid of, uh, of the change. And that fear makes them vulnerable to uh, other people's ideas of, of what the world should look like. Uh, and, you know, some of the, uh, we need change. I mean, I think the, the global financial system, for example, it's buckling and collapsing under its own weight because it's unsustainable. Our energy equation on the planet is unsustainable in, in its current form. Uh, the way that we're growing food is unsustainable in the presence of, of changing climate, which changes the, the local weather. The, the good news is that we already have all the answers to all the big problems facing us right now. We've had them for over almost 70 years. We've had the answers to the, the technological answers to energy, to food, uh, to, to climate, uh, I mean, all finances. We know how to build economies based on sharing and cooperation rather than scarcity and, and competition, which is what's playing out in the world right now. We already know all this. What's lacking is the leadership that makes these things a priority and makes human life a prior priority in our lives. And, and when I say leadership, I don't mean America or Europe or you know, China or Russia or anything. It's just the leaders, we're all leaders. We're all leaders. Mm -hmm. It's about the way that we think about ourselves and our, our brothers and sisters on this planet. And then the way that we transform our thinking into the choices that we make politically, financially, economically. Uh, and it's a very empowering way to begin to think about our world, but it all begins with our story. So our story, we've just covered uh, some topics here today that change our story and that give us new ways and new reasons to think differently about ourselves and in powerful ways. But I think it's important to do it in kind, kindness. I think it yeah. is counterproductive to be angry. We could be, and a lot of people are. As a scientist, here's how I, I look at this, Alex. I say that we are on a big learning curve and that we've made choices in the past as individuals and societies based on what we knew at the time, you know, we couldn't possibly have known in the 1950s what we know right now about DNA and biology and about energy production. <clears throat> so those old ideas, they served us and they got us to where we are and now we can let them go gracefully uh, rather than struggle to try to hang on to things that don't work. And let's embrace the, the new technologies that are out there and the thinking that makes them possible in our lives. Uh, and I think for the first time in a long time, we're gonna find out what it really means to be human in, uh, in this beautiful world that supports, supports our humanness. And 
it's easy to get stuck in little pieces of this and become angry um, because of where the world is now. But I think we are better served by allowing those pieces to support a big puzzle, look at that big picture and say, yeah, you know, the world of the past is changing. And, uh, and the good news is that we, we do have new solutions uh, that requires to think very, very differently about ourselves and our relationship to the world. And that's why these discoveries are important. So, Greg, I, uh, I, I, have to, I have to ask you one last thing. Please, please come back. Um, I, I, I can keep talking to you for like five or six hours, my friend. Uh, I know you're a busy man. I know you've got a lot of things to do, but I do appreciate you spending the time with us today and, and, and scratching the surface to a lot of these big monstrous questions I asked you. So I appreciate that, but please come back my friend. Cause it, this was a, such a wonderful conversation. Oh, well, thank, thank you. We'll call this uh, Greg and Alex part one. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, uh, you know, I think, I, I think it is a really important conversation that we're, that we're having. And I, I have to acknowledge as a scientist, it's a very different way of thinking. Uh, this is different than what I was taught when I was in school. And in the scientific community, there's a struggle in the scientific community because there's the old story and then there's the evidence that doesn't support it. And the scientists are saying, you know, what do we do with that? And how do we embrace that? And then some of them have pr pressure, economic pressure. You know, if you teach these new discoveries, you're going to lose your job. No more tenure. So, no more tenure. Well, I work with some of my dearest friends, Dr. Bruce Lipton. Yeah, he's coming, on, he's coming on the show tomorrow. I, I, thought, I thought he was going to be on soon. When you see him, give him my love. I will. I we, will. Just two, we were just uh, presenting in Paris together last uh, two weeks ago. We were just on the stage together. He, he left his tenure position in, in uh, teaching biology to medical students because his experiments did not support the curricula that he was teaching and he was not allowed to teach what the new discoveries showed, which today is now leading edge science that we call epigenetics. So he, he'll talk to you about that, I'm, I'm sure. So yeah, this is where, uh, you know, if we follow the evidence to the story it leads, I think it's, it's a very empowering new world that, uh, that awaits for the young people. And uh, I'm glad that we're around to see it come to fruition. Uh, but again, it all comes down to our story and the way that we've been taught to think about ourselves. So thank you for having a platform so we can share these ideas and explore them. And, um, and I do, I look forward to our next Alex. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you for all the hard work and the battling that you're doing out there to help the world. My friend, I appreciate you. You're very welcome. Take good care. I want to thank Greg so much for coming on the show and dropping all of his knowledge on all of us today. Thank you so much, Greg. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 178. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.